Miss David, you know, I, I read that story where he pretended madness when he was escaping uh, Abimelech. And he still blessed the Lord, although his life was in danger. Think about that. His life was in danger. He was in peril. And he still blessed the Lord at all times. And the Lord's praise shall continually be in his mouth. And that is the posture that we as believers are to take even when life seems to be falling apart or uh, we're being pursued by mortal enemies, which uh, we rarely are, but the enemies of the church, the enemies of Christ and his people, that we always bless the Lord. And he said, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Man, this is just such an encouragement to us as, as believers, those of us who are encountering different struggles in his life. To always look to the Lord. David said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blesses the man who trusts in him. And fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want in those who fear him. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Then toward the end he says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That is a faithful promise from the Lord that we are to hold on to. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. And the Lord redeems the souls of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. It's such a great promise from the Lord. And like the theme of it is what? The happiness of those who do what? trust in the Lord we're in a better position if we trust in God amen let us go before the Lord in prayer father thank you for the encouragement from your word that we just read from the pen of David on whose throne Christ sat and still sits Lord we come to you this morning as the Lord of all being and Lord, there's one thing that deserves our greatest care that calls forth our most serious desires. And that is, Lord, that we may answer the great end for which we were made to glorify you who has given us our being and to do all the good that we can for our fellow men. Lord, truly, life is not worth having if it be not improved upon this purpose. But Lord, how little is this thought of mankind? Most people seem to live for themselves without much or any regard for your glory or for the good of others. They earnestly desire and eagerly pursue the riches, honor, and pleasures of this life as if they suppose that wealth, greatness, and merriment could make their immortal souls happy. But Lord, this is a false delusion and a false dream that these people have. And Lord, how miserable before long will these be that believe that wealth, greatness, and merriment will make them happy. For all of our happiness consists in loving you and being holy 
as you are holy. Lord, may we never fall into the tempers and the emptiness of this life, the sensuality and the foolishness of this present world. Lord, this world and its philosophies and its ideologies is a place of inexpressible sorrow, a vast, empty nothingness. Father, time is a moment. It is a vapor. And all of its enjoyments are empty bubbles, fleeting blasts of wind, from which nothing satisfactory can come from it. Lord, give us all grace always to keep covenant with you, to not be like Israel who broke covenant with you. And Lord, help us to reject as delusion the things of this world, thinking that they will bring us happiness and joy. And all the sinful pleasures, Lord, help us to reject that delusion also. Lord, help us to grow continually that there can be no true happiness, no fulfilling purpose for us apart from a life lived in and for the son of your love. And Lord, we also turn our prayers to the saints here at our church. We thank you for what you have done in Sister Dolores' life in bringing her from the brink of death to now where she's in rehab, Lord, and, and she should be coming home shortly. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for her and her faithfulness to your church, to the flock here at the Living Church. Father, we pray that you continue to be with her, continue to heal her, continue, Father, to encourage her in the spirit. And Father, we pray for our brother Harvey, that you continue to bless him, Father, continue to heal him as he deals with his rehab of his balance and also his speech, that you be with him also, Father. Lord, continue to touch and heal Fran and her leg that you heal her, Lord. It's better than it was uh, on Tuesday, Father, but uh, she's still experiencing some, some minor inconvenience, Father. We pray that you be with her. We pray for uh, Sister Melissa and also myself, Lord, as we, we struggle with uh, the enslaving habit of, of gluttony, of food. Help us, Father, to break that, that dependence on it, Father to use it to your glory to use it in a way that is pleasing to you and to not make an idol out of it Lord because that is what we do in those moments we make an idol out of getting pleasure from eating and Father you can you are mighty to break enslaving habits and any of us else in here Father who have enslaving habits that we need to break we can't do it without your help Father, we can't do it without your wisdom and your guidance. Lord, we can't do it without looking to you and praying to you. And Lord, we know that you are faithful to answer those prayers. And we look forward to, forward to you, Father, uh, to do that for us. And Father, we also pray this morning for our sister churches, our cohort of churches, Father, of, of churches who are like-minded in doctrine and practice and theology. Uh, Hope Presbyterian with Brother Steve Mays, uh, First Baptist Southside, uh, Southside Baptist Church with uh, 
our brothers down there in Talladega and Brother Josh Henderson. A Grace Fellowship with Carlton. A Redeemer Church with Phil. Christian Fellowship with Brother Anthony. Uh, Anderson Bible Church with uh, Pastor Bob. Uh, Mountain View Church with Brother Justin Holland. And Lord, we also pray for uh, James Patterson and Mark Young. We pray for all these men, Father, including here at this church, that we shepherd the flock of God well with oversight. Lord, that we take care of the people through the ministry of the word, through the administration of the sacraments, and Lord, through the spiritual one anothering with the flock. Lord, help us to continue to lead our church as well. Help us, Father, to continue to preach the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and not turn uh, from the right hand or the left. And Father, we come now as your people gather as one before you with all of our weaknesses and failings and needs. Lord, we know that we need you. We need the grace that has come to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, we need to hear your gospel afresh this morning. We need the washing of the renewal of the Holy Spirit through the word. Lord, we need your illumination because our eyes are often dull and darkened. We're often distracted by the things of this world going through our mind. Lord, we struggle and so we ask now that you would teach us by your spirit through your word. We ask, Lord, that you would move us, that you would bring to light the greatness of who you are, our neediness, and that you would stir up faith that we might look to you and you alone. Father, I pray that you would remove from us pride and any thought that would hinder the reception of your word as it is in truth in the word of God. I ask, Lord, that in all of us, now as your people, that we will receive your word with hunger and thirst and gratefulness. So, Father, feed us through the word of Christ, who is the bread of life. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Let us turn to the book of Colossians as we're in. This is our third sermon in this book. And we are this morning in verses 19 through 23. Thank the Lord for expository preaching, preaching through the word of Christ. It is good for our souls to see the unfolding of God's story. And this morning we are going to preach on the amplification of Christ's work. To, to amplify something means to, to give attention to it, to, to make it more magnified. And we're going to look at Christ's work of reconciliation and what it means to be reconciled to God. So we're concerned ourselves this morning with verses 19 through 23. This is on the heels of Paul speaking of Christ as the image of the invisible God and that he is the firstborn from the dead. So Paul says here in Colossians 1 beginning at verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. 
excuse me, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. As far as observations, I talked last week about, uh, especially with the New Testament letters, a good thing to do as you read them is to underline the verbs and see a pattern of uh, consistency if, as far as what the author is preaching about. And if you look at these five verses, you can see the word reconcile and peace, the, the, the theme of reconciliation, appear in this text. In verse 19, we see the word reconcile. And then in verse 20, we see the word or the phrase having made peace. That's what reconciliation actually means to make peace. And at the end of verse 21, you see the word reconciled. So you see this theme here of reconciliation in this passage. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I have two quotes here to read uh, before you from Matthew Henry, who was a great theologian of the uh, 20th century or 19th century, and also uh, Ian McNaughton, who was a 20th century theologian. Matthew Henry said, Christ is the mediator of reconciliation. Remember, a mediator is a go-between, like an attorney, okay, like an advocate. So Christ is the one who mediates our reconciliation. A mediator is like a in-between person. Okay, you have two parties and you have the mediator in the middle. So Christ, he says, is the mediator of reconciliation who brings peace as well as pardon for sinners, who brings them into a state of friendship and favor at the present time and will bring all holy creatures, angels as well as men, into one glorious and blessed society at last. So he says, Christ brings us into a state of friendship with God. That's what he did. That is the amplification of what Christ did. That is the work that Christ did. Ian McNaughton said, the message of Christianity is nowhere more remarkable than in, in what is claimed for the death of Jesus. The claim here is that the fundamental disharmony in the universe, the dissonance in the totality of all things, the discord in the whole of created existence has been put right by the blood of Christ. It is an astonishing thing to say. He's saying that there is disharmony in the universe. That there's dissonance in the totality of all things. Dissonance and disharmony, they're synonyms of each other. And discord, the same thing. That's a synonym of disharmony and dissonance. All of them have been put right by the blood of Christ. We sang about the blood this morning. 
there's a fountain filled with blood. That that blood made it possible for discord to become unity and harmony within the created universe between man and God. The blood of Christ made that possible. This is good theology, people. This is this is good for us to know as believers and never forget that it's the blood of Christ, his sacrifice on the cross that made all this possible. It's a blessed privilege for the believer to be reconciled unto God through the shed blood of Christ. We were enemies and aliens of his wondrous grace and his saving power. That is every fallen man before God. Those who are not saved are enemies of God. They're aliens. They're strangers to the covenant, as Paul said in Ephesians 2. But God, through his son, Jesus Christ, he reconciled us to himself to present us holy and blameless before him. That's what this scripture teaches us. And with that reconciliation is the reality that we are to persevere in the faith and remain steadfast in the very gospel that saves us. That's what Paul is getting across in this passage. Because we're reconciled to God, we persevere in the faith. We don't take those small compromising steps, as I said earlier. Small compromises lead us away from God. But we persevere by not taking those small compromises, by not putting the Lord to the test. So the big idea of this sermon is that we're going to answer four questions from this passage. Number one who is the agent of our reconciliation? What was man's estate or his standing before receiving Christ? How can man be reconciled to God? How can man be at peace with God? And what does reconciliation do for the Christian? So let's look at our four principles in four questions. First question is, who is the agent in our reconciliation? We see this in verses 19 through 20. So it reads again, for it pleased the father that in him, who is him? Christ. The Christ that Paul speaks of in verses 15 through 18. He who is the image of the invisible God. He who is the firstborn of all creation. He in whom all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. He in whom all things consist. He who is before all things. He who is the head of the body, the church. So when Paul says, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, of Christ's cross, of the cross of Christ. So it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness of deity should dwell. All divine power and all divine attributes are found in Christ and they are not shared with creation Christ is sufficient 
as deity. In Christ, all the fullness of deity should dwell. All divine power. When Christ raised from the dead, he said, all power in heaven and earth is in my hands. Christ uh, possessed all power. He possessed all of the attributes of God. All of them are found in Christ. And they are not shared with us. His what we call incommunicable attributes. And by Christ, all things are reconciled to the Father. Things on heaven and things on the earth. All believers will be reconciled along with all creation. And why is this why is this important? Because Paul tells us in Romans 8 and 21 that creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. What does this mean? All of creation is corrupt right now. That's why we have this explains thunderstorms and natural disasters and wildfires why because we have to understand the extent of the fall of man the extent of the fall of man not only affected man it brought sin into the world but it also caused all of creation to go into chaos so the sin of Adam and Eve not only affected man but it also affected creation I learned this when I was at the ark encounter it did not rain on the earth until the flood that was the first time that it rained on earth before that the earth was watered by dew by the dew of the morning but because of the fall of man God judged the earth with what rain and the last judgment is going to be with what fire so why do we have storms and earthquakes and hurricanes and tsunamis and all these natural disasters? Because nature itself is groaning for its redemption just as we are. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 8 and 21. Because creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Creation itself is corrupted because of the sin. And Christ is going to come to do what? Reconcile all that. We're not going to have natural disasters in heaven. We're not going to have tornadoes and, and, and hurricanes and thunderstorms and, and, and flash floods and all these things in heaven. Why? Because Christ is going to reconcile. This is the grand work of Christ. This is the amplification of his work. It expands heaven and earth. Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, saints, believers, according to his promise, look for new heavens 
and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's that reconciliation that is going to take place. That is when Christ is going to make all things right. It's not going to happen in this earth right now. We pray for it, but it's not going to happen. All things are not going to be made right in creation until Christ returns and makes all things right. All humanity will submit to Christ, not just all who believe. What did uh, Paul say in Philippians 2? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Things above the earth, things on the earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Why? Because all creation is subject to the power of Christ and his reconciling power. So the believers past, present, and future are wrapped up in the next three principles. But before I go there, I want to note this, that Christ's reconciliation gives us peace with God through the cross. Again, we look back to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, Paul says, any man who is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This agent of our reconciliation gives us peace with God through Christ. Romans 5 and 1, the same Paul says this, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for the agent of our reconciliation, Jesus Christ. So now we're getting to our next three principles. The believers past, present, and future are wrapped up in these next three principles. Number one, what was man's estate before receiving Christ? That's our past. Look at verse 21. And you, remember we talk about when we read the letters, go back to the first verse, who is Paul writing to? The saints and the faithful brethren in Lord Jesus Christ. So that's who the you are. He's not talking to everybody in the world. He's talking about those who are in Christ. So, and you who were once alienated and enemies, underline those two words in your Bible if you like to, in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. He has reconciled. So, what was man's estate? before receiving Christ enemies and we were aliens the word alien means foreigner stranger that's what that word means a foreigner or a stranger we were strangers to God not that he didn't know us but he didn't know us as his children because we were alienated from him we were enemies of God those who are not saved are enemies of God that's a hard saying but it's a true saying those who are not in Christ are his enemies. Christ himself said, those who are not for me are against me. He was telling that to the Pharisees in Matthew's gospel. Those are the, 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 the dichotomies that exist. Either you are in Christ or you are an enemy of Christ. There is no middle 
ground. There's no straddling of the fence, as my old folks used to say. No, you're either for Christ or you are against Christ. You're either gathering, as Christ said, or you're scattering abroad. You can't do both. Those two things cannot be reconciled. Either you are in light or you are in spiritual darkness. Either you are dead in your trespasses and sins, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, or you have been raised to life in God through Christ. So before Christ, we were, Paul says, we were alienated. We were enemies of God. Paul says that in Ephesians 2 and 12. He says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's everyone's state before Christ saves them. Man was alienated and an enemy of God. We were cut off. We were estranged from. And we were hostile towards God. We hated God. We may not have, have said it and been a mean, hateful person. But the fact that you have not received Christ means that you hated the Father. We were enemies in our minds. What, what does Paul mean by this? He said you were once alienated. And enemies in your mind. That means that your attitude, your thoughts, your intentions were evil and hostile toward God. And we know people like that today. Their attitudes, their thoughts, their intentions are evil and hostile toward God. And Christ talks about these same people in John 3 verses 19 and 20. He talked about those. This is after the great verse of John 3 and 16, you know, for God so loved the world. But look at what Jesus says about those who don't believe in him. Look at John 3, verse 18, 19 and 20. This is what the scripture says. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Unbelievers are already condemned. They don't need to be told that they're condemned. Why are they condemned? He says, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And to believe in Christ's name doesn't just believe in the name Jesus, but his name represents who he is, what he came to do, his person and his work. To believe in his name is to believe that he what? Saves because remember, the, the name Jesus is the uh, the Hebrew word is Joshua, which means the Lord saves. So to believe in Christ's name is to believe that he what? That he saves. And Christ means Messiah, the one sent of God, sent of God to do what? To proclaim the gospel. That is to be what? Received. So if you believe in Christ, you believe that he is your savior. And you believe that he is the Messiah of God who came to proclaim the gospel to the lost. If you don't believe that then you're condemned. John continues, verse three, chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that light, the light has come into the world. Who is the light? Christ, the gospel. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People who reject Christ, they love their sin. They don't want you to confront their sin. They don't want you to confront that they're in sin. They don't want 
you to confront that unless they repent and turn to Christ, that they will be condemned forever. They don't want that. They don't want to hear that. They love their sin. They cherish their sin. They, they nurse their sin. They revel in their sin. They celebrate their sin. Why? Because they love darkness. Before you were in Christ, guess what? You loved darkness. You loved sin. You loved pride. You loved envy. You loved jealousy. You loved being rebellious and disobedient and obstinate and hard-headed and stiff-necked. We all love that. We love to abuse alcohol and abuse our bodies. We love darkness. We love sexual promiscuity. We love all those things. We did not want to hear the light of the gospel. We didn't want to hear, hey, you need to turn away from that. You're destroying yourself. Because men love darkness rather than light because of these were evil. And it ends here in verse 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deed should be exposed. This is the state of fallen man. They hate the light. You share the gospel with them. They may be nice to you and listen, but man, they, they're cringing inside. They're cringing inside. They don't want to hear that. They love their sin. They love darkness. They don't want to hear the light of the gospel. But this is what Paul says here. What was man's state before Christ? Hostile toward God. We were enemies in our minds, our attitudes, our thoughts. And our intentions. And this is, again is the state of every believer. Before receiving Christ. We need this reminder. As Christians. We need this reminder. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters. Nor adulterers nor homosexuals. Nor sodomites those who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners who inherit the kingdom of God and such were some of you some of the Corinthians were those things some of us may have been some of those things fornicators idolaters adulterers thieves covetous drunkards revilers that means partying all the time we were some of those things and even more. But Paul says, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. Or set apart. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. It is what unbelievers need to know about themselves. Even the good works they do are tainted with the sin of an unregenerate heart. But they need to know that there is hope. They can be among the such were some of you. The lifestyle, the simple lifestyles that they're living, guess what? God can save you from that. He's mighty to save, right? He is mighty to save. He saved us. The greatest miracle is salvation because we don't save ourselves it is God who saves us by grace we are saved through faith it is the gift of God it is not of works it's not anything that we've done 
If God saved us, guess what? He can save the adulterer. He can save the fornicated one who's shacking up, cohabitating. He can save the woman who murdered her child in her womb. He can save the homosexual sodomite. He can save the person who is confused about their sex. He can save them. They can be among the such were some of you. But that is the state of everyone. And so now we switch to the present principle. How can man be reconciled to God? That is the big question. Verses 20, the end of verse 21 through the beginning of 22. Yet now he has reconciled into the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. But unfortunately on the phrase, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. How does Christ present us? Holy. Christ reconciled us. Christ is the one who did the work. He presents us holy. That is a positional holiness. When God saves you, that's what makes you a saint. If you're a Christian, we talked about that in the very first sermon in this book three weeks ago if you are a saint you're holy same root word to be set apart God presents us holy again it's not about sinless perfection because no one is Christ was the only sinless person but positionally we are holy we are separated unto God we are justified that means we are declared righteous Paul says this in 2nd Corinthians 5 and 21 for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that means that Christ became a sinner that means that he, he, he lived in the flesh <laughs> that we might become the righteousness of God in him So in our passage this morning, look at the parallels between once and now and alienated and reconciled. He says, yet now we are reconciled, but we were once enemies. We were once alienated. We were reconciled to God by way of the cross. Christ substitutionary near death for all who believe made reconciliation possible I skipped ahead to my next principle that's why I had to go back I'm in the third one how can man be reconciled we're reconciled to God by way of the cross it is the cross that made that possible that's why he said in verse 22 in the body of his flesh through death if the cross did not happen we would have nowhere being reconciled to God Christ's substitutionary death for all who believe made this possible. And this brings up the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, which we believe as a church, which is a cardinal doctrine of the Christian church. Think about the word penal. Think about the penal system. Penal means punishment, penalty. 
we get the word penalty from the word penal, the root word. So think about penalty and think about substitution taking the place of. Okay? And then atonement is paying a penalty. So penal substitutionary atonement, that doctrine says that the guilt of our sins was placed on Christ as our substitute. Christ, and we talk about this all the time in church, but we just have to continue to remind us of what Christ did. We're talking about the amplification of Christ's work, what he did in reconciliation. He took on our sins because guess what? We can't. Christ, the guilt of our sins, the punishment of our sins, the condemnation of our sins were put on Christ. Christ bore our punishment for breaking God's holy law and commandments. We were the ones who belonged on the cross, not Christ. We're the ones who broke God's law. We're the ones who broke God's commandments, not Christ. Christ was sinless. He lived a sinless life. But in his work on our behalf, what did he do? He took on our punishment for breaking God's laws and commandments. What a great savior we have, people. Christ is a great savior. And we should praise the Lord for that. Isaiah 53 is all about that. Isaiah tells us that Christ was bruised. He was wounded for our transgressions. It's Isaiah 53 and 5. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, those 40 stripes he took at the whipping posts of two of Rome's finest that ripped his back open. With his stripes, we were healed, healed of our sins, healed of the guilt and the punishment and the condemnation of sins. With his stripes, who was healed? We were. That's the substitutionary death of Christ. He bore our griefs, he, uh, Isaiah says in 53 and 4. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. This is the work of Christ in reconciliation, in reconciling us unto himself. And this is the only way that man can be reconciled to God is through Christ. It ain't through going to church saying, I need to make my peace with God. As people foolishly say, you can't make your peace with God because you can't reconcile yourself to God because you can't atone for your own sins. You can't bear the punishment of your own sins. Only Christ did that. A man cannot. I don't care what people think and say. No one can make themselves right with God. That is done through Christ. You can go to church every single Sunday, sing every song, pray every prayer, listen to every sermon, and still leave out unreconciled to God because you haven't received Christ as your Lord and Savior. You haven't received his work on your behalf. No cross, no reconciliation. No cross, no peace with God. It is not 
possible. Paul says in Romans 3 and 25 that God sent Christ forth as a uh, propitiation. Propitiation means mercy seat or appeasement by his blood through faith. Christ had to appease the wrath of God because we could not. We could not do that. Which leads to our next principle. What does reconciliation do for the Christian? This is the future. It presents us, it says here, the second half of verse 22, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's when I say God will present us as holy. We are positionally separated unto God. John MacArthur said, as a result of the believer's union with Christ in his death and resurrection, God considers Christians as holy as his son. And it's something God presents us as holy as Christ because of our position. Man, this is so good. Not only is he going to present us holy, but Paul continues blameless, without blemish, without blame, not under the condemnation of sin. That is how Christ is going to present us. It's going to be as if we never sinned. That's the doctrine of justification. When a person comes to Christ and God saves them, they're justified immediately. Their sin record has been wiped clean. It is as if they never sinned. A believer should never walk around beating themselves over the head because of their sins. Why? Because your sin debt has been paid for. Your sins have been reconciled. Now, again, I have to say this all the time. Don't confuse condemnation with conviction. The believer is not condemned. Romans 8 and 1, read it. There's therefore now no condemnation. I, I quote that verse so much in here, y'all should know about heart just like I do. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How are you in Christ Jesus? By grace through faith in him by believing in him you're regenerated you're saved you're in the body of Christ you are not condemned that's a, that, that's a uh, condemnation again is a judicial word it is a penalty it is a punishment that's what it means to be condemned to be punished God does not punish believers he punishes unbelievers oh I must have done something wrong God must be punishing me Lord, why is all this happening to me? I must have done something. Lord, what have I done? That is false humility. That is false piety. Chastisement, yes. But chastisement is not punishment because punishment is not corrective. Punishment is condemnation. Chastisement is for correction. God chastens those whom he loves. Just like a good parent chastises their children. And conviction is when the Holy Spirit lets you know that you sinned against God. That's conviction. And that conviction leads to repentance and confession. 
Condemnation leads just to a pity party. A woe is me. Without knowing or without realizing the gospel truth that you're blameless. That you're not under the condemnation of sins as unbelievers are. And how else is he going to present us? First he says holy, then blameless, then he said what? Without or above reproach. This is a good one. No one can lay a charge against a believer. And we're talking about in the spiritual sense. That don't mean that if you go out there and rob a bank that, no, that, 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 <laughs> that the police can't charge you with, uh, <laughs> with property. That's, that's not what that means. So don't go out there and commit a crime and say, you can't lay a charge against me. That's what the Bible says. Uh, no, that's not what that means. <laughs> Paul says here, so that's not letting anybody off the hook. Paul says in Romans 8 and 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That means no one can charge you against your sin record because your sin record has been forgiven. You have been justified. You have been declared righteous by God. That's why he says it is God who justifies. And if God justifies you, no one can lay a sin charge against you and hold it and dangle it over your head and condemn you with it. They may say condemning words, but they can't condemn you. Why? Because no one can lay a charge of condemnation against the elect of God. No one can, believer, People may try to bring your past sins up. And some people will do that to try to put you in your place, so to speak. But guess what? They can do that all they want, but no one can lay a charge against God's elect. Say it all they want. Who can, who can successfully accuse someone whom God has declared righteous no one no one no one John MacArthur says this, this is helpful for us in looking at what reconciliation does for the Christian on Romans 8 and 34 John MacArthur says to declare guilty and sentence to punishment that's what condemns means he says, there are four reasons the believer can never be found guilty. Number one is Christ's death. Number two is his resurrection. Number three is his exalted position. He's seated at the right hand of the Father as our um, advocate, as our intercessor. And that's the fourth one, his continual intercession for us. Christ continually intercedes for us. He continuously advocates for believers. He advocates on our behalf before the Father. So his reconciling work does all that for us as believers. So back to the passage, Paul says he presents us holy, blameless, and without or above reproach. And we will be presented to Christ as his chaste bride. 
above reproach in his sight. That's how we will be presented. So what are some gospel implications and applications? Let's look at implications first. These are for gospel reminders. We need to remind ourselves of our spiritual state before God saved us. Remember, we didn't reconcile ourselves. It was all of Christ. We must remember that. One theologian said the idea that the Christian faith is a kind of self-help technique designed to add some sense of importance to our lives is a terrible picture of faith in Christ. Observe what we learn of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. All things were created through him and for him. He is the beginning. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's what we see the summary of Christ in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1 of Colossians. It's all about him. He is the beginning. In him, the fullness dwells. All things were created through him and for him. He is the image of the invisible God, not us. Christian faith is not a self-help technique where you save yourself. You pick yourself up by your own bootstraps. It is missing the point of the gospel to suggest that faith in Christ is about me or my finding meaning and purpose in my life. Many people are searching for their purpose in life. Many people are wandering aimlessly in this world trying to find their purpose, but they're trying to find it through themselves. Through loving themselves, which is a, a false thing. Through self-help. And so when we turn Christianity into something that is all about me, it would be a mistake to miss the fact that there's nothing that gives meaning and purpose to life remotely comparable to the faith in Christ. Nothing gives more credibility or meaning or purpose to our life other than faith in Christ. We can't give ourselves more meaning than Christ can. Christ, in Christ, faith in Christ is where we find our meaning in life. Not faith in ourselves, not believing in ourselves, not loving ourselves, despite what Whitney Houston's saying. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. You remember that song? Learning to love yourself is the greatest. No, it's not. It's not the greatest love of all. I talk about this all the time. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but we cannot love ourselves more than our creator loves us or ever will love us. God loves us despite our sinfulness, despite our wretchedness. We're not worthy of God's love, but he loves us still because he is worthy, not because we are. That's the gospel reminders. If you start your need for meaning and purpose in life by yourself or by you 
that need will never be met. But if we start with Jesus Christ, know this for sure. The truth about Jesus brings to our lives the most profound meaning and purpose ever. Jesus said in John 8 when he was talking to the Pharisees, you shall know the truth and the truth shall do what? Set you free. Free from the bondage of sin. Free from the bondage of self-worship. Free from the idolatry of self. And the truth is the truth of Jesus Christ. The truth of who he is because he was trying to tell in that context of John 8, he was trying to tell his audience who he was. That before Abraham was, I am. And they accused him of blasphemy. The truth is not just what's right. It is who truth is. And truth is Christ. That's why Christ prayed in John 17. Lord, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. For evangelism. We need to remind out. We, we need to remind rather unbelievers of their spiritual state before God. Always remember this, people. Man's greatest problem is sin. The problem that plagues all humanity is sin. Man doesn't have a skin color problem. Man has a sin color problem. Sin is man's greatest problem, not, quote, racism or white supremacy, as our president says over and over again. And you know what? For sake of argument, you can't get rid of white supremacy if you don't get rid of sin. Because that ideology is a heart problem. You can't get rid of racism unless people's hearts are changed. Christ gives them a new life, gives them eternal life. They have a new birth. They're regenerated. So for sake of argument, okay, let's say we do have a racism problem. How is it going to be solved? Not going to be solved through uh, legislation. Not going to be solved through protest. Not going to be solved by rioting and, and, and all these things. Not going to be solved by a race war. It can only be solved when man sees that man is the problem and man is not the solution. That's the secular worldview. The secular worldview sits opposite of the biblical worldview. The secular worldview says man is the problem and man is the solution because the secular worldview rejects God. Rejects a quote higher power or a transcendent force above us and outside of us the secular worldview guess what it rejects that but man cannot be the solution to his own problem because guess what it's going to create more problems until a person's heart is regenerated until that sin is addressed it is very important for us to see the reality of this condition of man So often, the unconverted, those who are unsaved, seem very comfortable with themselves. They seem very much at home in this world. They often seem secure and very happy, don't they? 
but it's not always you know but most of the time it seems like that but it is not like that people the totality of all things and for every single person must be seen in their relation to Christ we must learn to see unbelievers as they are they're alienated and they need a savior they are lost they are without hope in this world what does it always say for the unbeliever this world's the best that it gets go ahead eat drink be merry party corral sleep with whoever you want to sleep with buy all the things you want to buy make all the money you want to make do it all live it up this is the best that it's going to get because as the scripture says it is appointed unto every man wants to die and after that the judgment for the world this earth is the best that it gets build the big houses get all the boats and the jet skis and take all the vacations and again there's nothing inherently sinful about those things but when you put your life and your substance and your sense of being into those things you're setting yourself up to be judged and condemned by the one who will judge everyone and who will judge all things and no amount of material possession you have is going to bail you out you cannot bargain with God people when you stand before that white throne of judgment he is going to be giving out the synthesis you're not going to be making recommendations to the judge you're not going to be able to advocate for yourself and say your honor oh God oh, oh higher power or big man upstairs I object He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And that's going to be a final sentence. There are going to be no time for appeals. There's not going to be a, a, a program to advocate for all those who have been sentenced to hell that they get a lighter sentence. For evangelism. Unbelievers need to know their estate before God. That they're sinners and that they need a Savior. And you can testify to how great your Savior is. Amen. And we close with our applications. How is reconciled man to live? Verse 23, Paul tells us, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven for which I, Paul, became a minister. So how is reconciled man to live? Number one, we persevere in the faith. This is human responsibility. He says if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. Those who have been reconciled to God through Christ will persevere in faith and obedience because they are made new creatures. We will persevere. Because we have been reconciled. God perseveres us. Paul, uh, well, uh, Luke wrote, wrote this in Acts 11 and 23. When he came and had seen the grace of God, this was Barnabas. 
he was glad and encouraged that all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord that is an encouragement for people to see people persevere in the faith Acts 14 and 22 it says here the ministry of uh, Paul strengthening the converts it says strengthening the souls of the disciples exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God so now that we're reconciled guess what we persevere in the faith it is God who perseveres us we pray for our perseverance we pray for the perseverance of all the saints and then the last thing remain on the solid foundation of Christ he says if indeed you are grounded and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel we remain on the solid foundation on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand and this is found in the gospel which must be preached and heard and we remain steadfast in that gospel Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and 11 for no other foundation can be can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ he is our firm foundation he is our mighty fortress he is the one on whom we stand he is that solid ground in conclusion I want to say nothing comes close to the importance and significance of this gospel I encourage all of us to stick with it don't allow some other way of seeing life and the world turn you from it do not move from the hope that this gospel has given you. This hope is the hope of all creation that we have been reconciled and others can be reconciled to. Man's greatest need is to be saved from his sins. Man's greatest problem is sin. Man's greatest need is to be saved from his sins and be made right with God. And they can only do that through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the reconciliation that Christ has brought to all of humanity. Thank you, Father, for Christ's reconciling work in making a way for all of us to be right with you. And Father, my prayer this morning for the saints is that we realize that we recognize that we continue to live as reconciled people that we persevere in the faith, that we remain on the solid foundation of Christ that is found in the gospel. And Father, we pray for those who are unbelievers. Give us, Lord, evangelistic hearts to minister to them, to share the hope that we have in Christ with them, to show them their estate before God right now, that they are lost, that they are aliens, that they are strangers to God, that they are enemies of God, and that their only hope is found in Christ and his reconciling work Father thank you for your word thank you for the faithful who are gathered here and those who watched on Facebook may you use your word Lord to encourage and uplift our hearts as believers and convict sinners bringing them to a saving faith in you in Christ's name I pray Amen